Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. What a week for a preacher. you got two crazy texts. You have the Epistle of St. James where he says, Faith without works is dead. And then you have Jesus, uh, what appears at face value, being kind of mean to a Syrophoenician woman. And um, across the church today, some terrible sermons are going to be preached. And um, what I want to do is, is, so since there's so much, I'm going to focus on James. But in my e-news this week, I will explain the Syrophoenician incident. And, uh, but I do want to let you know that it's not about Jesus coming to some deeper understanding about himself. That's not what this is about, um, as often is preached. So stay tuned. If you're not part of eNews, email info at CalSaintGee and we'll sign you right up. Well, today's text, let me begin with a story from, um, from church history in the Church of England in the 1800s. And what was happening was is that the Wesley brothers were preaching in Bristol. They were preaching in Bristol, and they were, and he's the founder of the Methodist movement, and they were preaching in the mines of Bristol. And they were preaching and taking the gospel into the gin saloons. They were taking the gospel into the gin saloons outside of the mines in Bristol, and they began to preach the gospel to the drunks, these men who would spend their entire paycheck on gin. And as they were preaching, Wesley began to teach them. He began to say, You can be saved by our Lord Jesus Christ, even if you never quit drinking. Well, this trickled up to the Bishop of Bristol. And he heard about this, and he confronted John and his brother Charles. And he said, You can't tell these drunks that that they'll be saved if they don't quit drinking, because what happens if they don't quit drinking? And John Wesley looked at the Bishop of Bristol and said, like they do every day. He said, just like they do every day, their only hope is to have their hearts turned by the gospel, the preaching of grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ with no works whatsoever. John Wesley in that moment, I would argue, was at the very heart of, of Christianity. It is not about what you do for God, but rather what God in Christ has done for you freely, without expectation or assessment. That's the profundity of the gospel. Almost echoing Ephesians chapter 2 verses 3 and 8, or Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved, by faith, And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, whenever one begins to talk about the power and the role of faith, whenever one heralds justification by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, people who know uh, who they are before a holy and righteous God Well, like those men in the gin saloons, they all of a sudden, they hear it and they get excited about the forgiveness of sins. They get excited about it. And rightly so. Because as I say all the time, 
every single one of us, including you and me, is three days away from tabloid news. And most of us are on day two. You know, that, that's who we are. That was supposed to be hysterical. But anyway, um, that is who we are before a holy and righteous God. Not good people basically getting better, but bad people coping with our failures to be good. It's true. People hear the gospel, for it is by grace, through faith, that you've been saved. And not by works. There's all of a sudden this sense of relief that comes through. As we rest in Jesus' blood alone. Until, sadly, and this misinformed tension occurs between men like the Bishop of Bristol and John Wesley. This misinformed tension occurs when we pit St. James against St. Paul. We just read St. James ask the question, can faith save you? And then he appears to give the definitive answer, no. What's going on there? James writes, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Seems like a contradiction. When it comes to understanding this epistle and bringing it into harmony with St. Paul, one needs to understand the context. According to church tradition, the author of St. James, the author of this epistle, was a man by the name of James the Just. And he was a half-brother of Jesus. And St. Paul tells us in uh, 2 Corinthians that he was converted at the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus encountered him at his resurrection, making him an apostle. And then he of Jerusalem. And his church, he was a key figure in the early church. A lot of people talk about Peter. But before Peter was ever important, James in the early church was really important. Because he was the bishop of Jerusalem. And his congregations were primarily Jewish converts who were asking, where does the Mosaic law and all of our tradition and customs fit into this new covenant that Jesus has established by his blood? Now, St. Paul and St. James have an encounter in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, at what was called the Council of Jerusalem. And what was going on at the Council of Jerusalem is all these Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus. And they were starting to attend synagogue and starting to come to the temple and making pilgrimages to Jerusalem. While at the same time enjoying pork knuckle and all of these other things. You know, and they weren't being circumcised on the eighth day. And so the question was, what do we do with all these Gentiles? And it was decided that because Jesus had fulfilled the law, James and Paul both agreed on this, and all of the apostles did, that nothing should be added to the gospel. The good news that Christ has saved you apart from yourself. Nothing should be added to the gospel. And any calls for restraint, any calls for restraint was for the sake of our neighbor not our justification before God. And this makes sense when you begin to put these two statements. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Faith without works is dead. This makes sense because the New Testament is roughly 280 pages. And the epistle of St. James is four of those pages. 
And people get nervous when radical grace is preached. 100% God's gift to you. Pure grace is preached. People get nervous because we all get a little worried that someone's going to get away with something. You know? And we immediately yell, faith without works is dead. Or we like tamp it down a little bit and we're like, yeah, 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 grace, of course, but, but you got to do something. Don't forget James. And this is my first point. You got to understand this when you're reading the Bible. Uh, We distinguish two words between both law and gospel. That's how you read the Bible. And hermeneutically speaking, how you interpret the Bible is you never use four pages to interpret 274 or 276. You always, I I failed math, but anyway, you always read St. James through the lens of St. Paul, not the other way around. You always read James through the lens of grace, not grace through James. You always read the Bible through the cross and what Jesus has done for you, not what you now need to do for God. So, open up your bulletin and let's take a quick look closely at what James is saying here and what he's getting at. Now in chapter 2, he's speaking to this church And uh, this church, and he's speaking about partiality, because uh, in this church, they've been showing partiality to the rich. In James's day, the church revolved around a meal. We've we've reduced it to communion, but back in the day, this was like a huge dinner that took place. And St. Paul actually is addressing this issue to the Corinthian church as well. Because what would happen was, is that the poor would come in and they would receive their plate, but then all of a sudden the rich would come in and they'd get like the special plate. They'd save like the best pieces of, you know, ham for the people who were coming with lots of money. And they had the best seats at the table. It was all of this stuff. They were showing partiality. They were showing partiality. And James is teaching here in chapter 2 to all of us that what a person believes about God, what you believe about God, often dictates how you're going to treat other people. Therefore, partiality is the fruit of the fact, it's the result of the fact that your view of God is really low. Or it's the result of the fact that your view of yourself is extremely, extremely high. That we're so high, we're so lofty, you know, that we have been basically placed on the throne of our universe, on the throne of judgment, to determine where people stand in our kingdoms. And we can't seem to escape this, can we? I mean, it's built into us. And partiality dehumanizes the other person. Partiality eliminates any sort of compassion, love, or understanding for someone who, although different, who, although maybe in a different circumstance, has been created in the image of God. Sexism, ageism, racism, classism, and all the other isms out there floating around that we obviously don't do, is a part, is the fruit of partiality. And while you may be thinking that you are above someone, James reminds this church that your law, your standards aren't the ultimate one. But rather, before the law of God, 
He refers to it here as the royal law, the law of Moses. No partiality will be given. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word that's delivered to Moses. This is the word Jesus delivers on the Sermon on the Mount as they are elevating this royal law. The law of God is not partial. It's not partial to race. It's not partial to men or women. It's not partial to rich or poor. But it judges everyone equally. And the law of God says that while you may be a victim... The law of God says you're also a victimizer. And that's heavy duty. And this is my second point. We've all shown partiality. Maybe it's been racial. Maybe it's been uh, sexism or sexual. Maybe it's been political. Maybe it's been socioeconomic. Whatever it is, James says it does not matter before the royal law. Like Jesus, like St. Paul, James is lifting this law up to its highest pitch to make us all uncomfortable, to bring us to our knees. James takes the law of God to its highest pitch and writes, whoever keeps the whole law but faults in one point, may not have murdered, may not have stolen, but I lied may not have murdered, may not have stolen, but I definitely have not honored my mother and father. He takes it to its highest pitch and says, if you've done just the little bit of it, you're accountable for all of it. (sighs) We're all guilty. And we're all offenders before the law. The law of God is total. That royal law is total. And it shows no partiality. Well, be terrible if I ended my sermon right here, right? But if you remember, last week I said, what separates James from any old religion is that he's always, because religion will say, go in and try harder, try harder next time, do it next time. James is like, quit going within, because when you go within, the only thing you're going to find is more sin and more death. So if you remember last week I said, James, he's always pulling us outside of ourselves. Last week in chapter 1, he spoke powerfully about the implanted word, Jesus, a word outside of you that comes and dwells within you. That's your baptism. Today in chapter 2, James speaks of the law of liberty. And it is these things outside of us, outside of us, that draws to grace, the grace of God, where he has accomplished all of the law on our behalf, which enables us to sing amazing grace. The law of liberty is different from the royal law. The law of liberty indeed was foreshadowed in the Old Testament by the law and the prophets, yet in the fullness of time it has been revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ where God's mercy has triumphed unequivocally over God's judgment. God's mercy has changed everything, and it has changed you and I, who were captives to sin and death, into free sons and daughters of the living God. 
For as the royal law, as I just said, shows no partiality in its condemnation and in its judgment, neither does the law of liberty show partiality in its distribution, especially to the most notorious of us, in its distribution of God's forgiveness, of his grace, and of his mercy, making us truly alive in his name. And baptized into Jesus, you are truly alive. Baptized into Jesus, Sabrina and Selena Angel and Sapphire Rose and Juliana, you too will be truly alive. And this is my third point. Faith without works is indeed dead. Because without faith, which is given by grace... We're all already dead. However, you and I at our baptisms were given the law of liberty. Jesus Christ's mercy triumphs over judgment, and mercy is freely given to each and every one of us, making us dead people alive in Christ, born again, as St. John says, prompting us by faith to demonstrate that same mercy that has been shown to us by God might be reflected and distributed to our neighbors. Let me conclude with this. Many historians have written about how those Wesleyan revivals that began in the minds of Bristol, those Wesleyan revivals that were sparked by the preaching of grace, actually saved England from going down the same bloody, tyrannical road that the French went down around the same time. For a moment, as Wesley preached grace, as his brother Charles preached grace, as George Whitfield preached grace, for a moment, people's hearts were touched. And they began then to treat each other with charity. They began to treat each other with dignity and respect. And the fruit of that ministry manifested itself in a slave trader named John Newton who wound up shipwrecked off the coast of Ireland. And it converted him... And he became an Anglican priest, and he wrote the song Amazing Grace. And his ministry converted a man named George, uh, uh, named, um, named, uh, uh, named William Wilberforce, who was a member of Parliament and the head of the Clapperton sect. And that Amazing Grace impacted him. And through his ministry in Parliament, he brought an end to the British slave trade. But it wasn't because they had to. Or what would happen if they, people just kept on sinning? But because we do this. This all happened because they've been transformed by the amazing law of liberty. They've been transformed by Jesus and his free and never-ending grace. And as we watch these four candidates get baptized... As we watch these four candidates receive the law of liberty, the amazing grace, Jesus Christ himself, I want to encourage you to ponder, what would you do if you really understood God's love was not contingent on what you do? What could our church look like as we move into the fall year if it really understood God's grace was not contingent on what we do? My brothers and sisters, it's happening, and I can't wait to find out. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to our sermon podcasts, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.